Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning. Um, sorry that it's warm in here. I think the, the air is still broken uh, here, so we're going to just sweat it out together. Um, and uh, actually, I asked them to turn the heat up because the heat is coming. Um, and the, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, sorry, for those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Taylor Leachman, and I can be ridiculous sometimes. Um, I'm the pastor here at Advent, and um, uh, our mission at Advent, you probably heard um, uh, Jackie reference it a little bit earlier. Our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, to Rice University, and to these surrounding neighborhoods. And so every Sunday, we gather together to be reminded of who we are and who God is and what he has done for us, that we are the recipients of his grace. And so we embrace that, um, and we embrace him, right? And that helps us to continue to kind of embrace and embody, meaning, right, that, that we allow that grace to change us in our whole being. And, um, and then it goes out and extends from there as we extend it to others. And so um, one of the things we do each week is we read a, a passage from, uh, from Scripture and we talk about it and study it together. And we've been going through Genesis chapter 1 through 11 um, in a series we've called The Origin Story, and we are, after about 16 weeks, finally coming to the end of the series. I don't know if that um, begets like, clapping or, if that, uh, or weeping. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I will probably be doing both. Um, but uh, you know, that we're, we're actually going to begin a new sermon series during the season of Lent. Um, we're going to be talking about from all of the different gospel... <laughs> from all of the different gospel stories, um, the different words that are recorded that Jesus spoke on the cross. Um, so it's called the seven last words of Jesus. Um, and, uh, and so, but today we're going to end uh, our series um, on the, the Tower of Babel, uh, a story that maybe some of you are familiar with, but um, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to read it in light of what God has for us. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, um, it's on page 7 of your pew Bibles, uh, which I would recommend reading it there just as a reminder that it doesn't come to us only as a small text, but it's a part of God's whole story. Um, verse 1, now the whole earth had, o- had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower uh, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we, be di- lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, uh, from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give us, as we look at your word together, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if, if this is still a thing, but I remember in, in elementary school, um, kind of when you learned the word epidermis, uh, that somebody would say to you, your epidermis is showing. And then you'd be like, well, I don't know what that means. And you'd get all nervous, right? Um, you don't know exactly how to respond to that. What can people see? What does epidermis actually mean? Um, well, John Walton, who's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton, used that phrase to describe how sin affects our view of God. And he actually talks about how uh, the problem of Babel is that our paganism is showing, right? That we often focus in sin, and what we have focused on in Genesis up to this point is that sin changes our our actions um, and our beliefs about ourselves, Right, that we want to be like God or that we want to be in control or that we want to do or have or be whatever we want to do or have or be um, and that we don't want to listen to what God tells us. But sin not only affects our beliefs about ourselves, it affects our beliefs about God. Right, Though God has revealed himself to us as wholly sufficient, as wholly loving, as righteous, right? We end up creating a belief about God as if he is in our own image, right? As if somehow he is just like us. In particular, we begin to believe that God has needs, right? And not only that, we begin maybe even to believe that there's different gods and those different gods have different needs, right? So he or they... Uh, need to be pampered or catered to so that we can get whatever it is that we actually want out of them. Right? In particular, there is a belief that these gods can be manipulated. Right? If you chant the right way, then the gods are going to be more willing to listen to you. If you say the right words in a prayer or in, a, in something along those lines, then the gods will be obligated to do what it is that you are asking for. If you Uh, give this kind of sacrifice or if you drink this type of potion then the gods are going to grant you fertility or whatever it is that you uh, are, are living into right unless we think that this is somehow only true of a pre-christian or a kind of a pre-industrial part of the world there are all kinds of ways for our sinful paganism uh, that it can be showing right so For example, right now in Houston, um, you probably are familiar, if you're younger, definitely you're familiar with the phrase manifesting, 
right? It's sort of what Gen Z's new age spirituality, it's this idea that you can bring a thought or a dream into the physical presence by uttering it enough or by creating a manifestation board, right? That you can manifest it into reality. There was a famous football player that talked about how he manifested his new contract for the New Orleans Saints, right? Um, You can powerfully speak it into existence. That's a form of our paganism showing. Or the rise of astrology recently uh, in Houston um, is a form of paganism that if I understand my cosmic birth order, I can better understand how I can make things uh, in my own control, how I can manipulate others or how I can manipulate my future to my own ends. But our paganism can show in Christianity as well. We can twist right, who God is for our own kind of ends. Right? Thinking that maybe if we give enough money um, to the church or, or to, to the Lord somehow, that then he will shower us with wealth. Thinking that if we pray for something with the right formula, right? If, if I just pray for something but I say it in Jesus' name, then he will do what it is that I am asking for him to do. Right? So anytime that we believe that there's sort of a formulaic way of obligating God to our will to bend to what we want, our paganism is showing Right? Often this exists most extremely with like prosperity gospel preaching, if you're familiar with that phrase. Um, but, but this can creep into each and every corner of our faith. Right? When we believe that God needs us, that he needs our church or our ministry, our paganism is showing. When we believe that even suffering is because we have failed to live according to what he would have for us. And that was why we no longer have his blessing, but in fact have his cursing, our paganism is showing. And if you're like me, we often view paganism as sort of ignorant or pejorative. Um, But G.K. Chesterton, who's a a theologian, a a Catholic theologian um, from the first half of the 20th century, rightly helps us better understand what paganism actually is. He says, the term pagan is continually used in fiction and literature as meaning a man without any religion, whereas a pagan was generally a man with about half of a dozen religions. Pagans are depicted as above above all things inebriate, and lawless, where they were above all things reasonable and respectable. They're praised as disobedient when they have only one great virtue, civic obedience. They are envied and admitted as shamelessly happy when they only had one great sin, which is actually despair. In other words, Chesterton reminds us that pagans were not lawless, godless, hedonists that we might think of today. In fact, they were law-abiding, many God-worshipping people, temperate citizens. But they believed that they could manipulate God or the gods to get what they wanted. And because of that, they actually lived in constant despair because they could not bend the world to their needs and to their wants. So you ultimately come to a place of thinking, how have I displeased the Lord? 
Why is he not listening to me? Right? I have done something wrong. I am wrong. I am unloved and unworthy. And so, as we look at our passage this morning, um, I want to I follow this outline, which is that, <clears throat> that, that, that paganism is essentially driving the story here of Babel. And so first, I want to look at the Tory, that, that, sorry, the tower. Um, second, the dispersal. And third, the solution. So the tower itself, then kind of what, what the dispersal is all about, and then finally, uh, the good news of the solution here. Well, so uh, our passage begins with telling us that the whole earth or the whole, whole land had one language, right? That they used the same words. Um, and there was unity amongst the people. There were different peoples and clans and that, the, uh, that, that were on the earth up to this point. And the people always seemed to be, uh, for whatever reason, um, moving east. Everything in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 has people moving to the east in early parts of Scripture. Right, possibly they're still moving east from Eden. Um, it could be also that this is a reference to uh, moving east from the promised land, right? as, as if that is sort of the referent point. Um, but we don't really know exactly what it's referring east from. We just know that they're heading east and they're headed to Shinar. Um, and, uh, you know, most of us don't know where Shinar is. I had to look it up this week myself. Shinar is actually right in the heart of ancient Mesopotamia. And that is really helpful for our context here that we'll come to a little bit later when we understand what type of tower we're actually talking about here. Um, we're told that these settlers come to the plain of Shinar and that they want to build a city. And the details here should remind us of the story of Enoch from Genesis chapter 4. Right? He's a descendant of Cain who is the first city builder. Right? And what we remember, uh, because we all remember all the things that we talk about each, each and every week, but um, no, uh, as we are reminded by the Enoch story, it is not that the gathering of, or creating of cities is any more sinful or any less sinful than other parts of the world. However, we're reminded in the Enoch story, as we are here, that when a whole lot of sinners get together, it is possible for that sin to multiply, right? And to create a, a, an even richer, so to speak, um, or poorer uh, uh, combination of sin together. Cities reflect the heart of their people. So think of Houston, for example, right? In, in all of its diversity and all of its concrete, uh, what is it that actually unites the Houston, the, any, many Houstonians, right? Is it not working and making money? Right? Um, kind of the sheer pragmatism of this city, the thinking I'm, I'm going to work and I'm going to make money for me and my family, right? Houston reflects the heart of its city. And that gives us some indication of what the problem is here in this passage. Right? We see that in this city that's being talked about here, there is a tower. And now don't think office building. Don't think Eiffel Tower. Um, don't even think pyramid. Right? What is being referred to would have been an ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat. Um, ziggurats, uh, apart from kind of their, their large base and their tiny top, 
uh, are actually nothing like a pyramid, um, even though they kind of look like a pyramid. Pyramids uh, had vacuous rooms all throughout them and were used for burial and a lot of other things. A ziggurat was a bunch of bricks with a lot of dirt filled in. It was utterly solid with the exception of the room at the top. Right? And along the staircase, along the side was a staircase, a staircase that led all the way to that top room. And in that top room was a welcoming room for their God. Um, it might have had a bed or a table. Right? And despite the presence of the staircase, the ziggurat was not actually a place of public worship. Right? It wasn't designed for public use. Um, it was considered a sacred space. Right? And therefore, the people were not allowed to actually ascend or descend. Right? Much like in Exodus, when Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai and the rest of the people stay at the bottom, it was sacred ground. And only one person was to go to the very top to meet with their God. There was typically, though, a temple located right next to the ziggurat. That was where the place of public worship was. And the ziggurat was intended to uh, welcome the deity or the God down from heaven so that they could be present for the worship of the city. Does that make sense? We kind of... All right. Um, this was a place for... For God to come down from his dwelling place on high and to help make the name of the city great, right? It was particularly to help them, uh, to help them be protected or to keep them from being dispersed throughout the land as was being referred to here in our passage, right? They're trying to build something great because they're trying to get their deity to do something great for them, right? And as our introduction pointed out, we let our paganism show in all kinds of ways, right? Where we try and twist God's arm and manipulate him in little ways. Where we think like, you know, God, if I'll just, I'll go to church if you make my business great, right? I promise you, I'll just start being a churchgoer. Or if I just pray the right way with the right words or with enough belief, then God will answer my prayer about my parent or my friend or my coworker or my child, and with Lent coming up, right, where it's typically a season where we try to give something up, we can be tempted to believe that somehow in our behavior, in our self-sacrifice, that we can then obligate God to do something for us. Right? If I give up chocolate, or if I give up... Nobody uses Facebook. That's a bad example. If I, if I, if I give up whatever it is that we want to give up, we can think, you know... God will see just how serious my faith is and he will bless me as a result. That is not to say that prayer isn't good for us, right? Or that God doesn't tell us to pray or hear us when we pray. But whenever we believe that we can manipulate God either with our prayers or with our actions, we are falling into the problem of the people of Babel, right? Our God loves to hear from us, and he always answers us. Sometimes that answer is no, but we can never believe that we are the ones that are in control of him. He does not answer to us. That gets us to our second point here, which is the dispersal. Excuse me. The people of Babel, they wanted to create 
a tower for God to come down and to serve them. And the irony and the very climax of the passage is right at the middle. Verse 5, where it tells us God does come down. Right? It tells us that he does so, but his coming down is not to do whatever the people want, but it's much like God coming down into the Garden of Eden with Adam and with Eve. He shows up to bring justice, but also grace here. Right? And the sin of, of the people's hearts, right? and as they work together kind of in that sin, they're further confusing one another about who God is, about their understanding of the Lord and how they're to live in light of that. So because they're together and they're further making it hard uh, to know who God is and they're confusing one another even more, God, in judgment of their false beliefs, confuses their languages so that they can no longer understand one another's speech. And from there, they're dispersed throughout the land. And before we focus on the judgment of this declaration, I want for us to see that there's actually some grace here to this and kindness on God's part. Right? God in confusing people and, and in making it harder for us to unite around false worship is making it, he's actually um, making it possible so that they don't solidify their disbelief or, or spur one another on in falsehood. He confuses them and he scatters them. And that is God's grace. Would God interrupt us when we do the same? When we fall into the same sin, gathering together around false beliefs, around false gods or false causes. What a grace to be stopped in our sin and hindered from pursuing it further. It's much like when I was a child, my mom used to always pray that I would be caught. Not that, uh, it be, not because we're ever going to really be able on this side of heaven to flee always from sin, but rather so that we don't keep going down the path of sin where it further and further solidifies. Right? The Lord here is catching them and dispersing them. And in God's judgment here, there is judgment as well. We see that there are different ethnic groups that originate. That by God's hand, as these united people are dispersed throughout the land and given different languages and different territories, that there is more of division amongst the united people. Um, there's dispersal and there's confusion. They're unable to, to wrongly worship together, which is God's grace, but also they are divided. And now maybe we are a divisive people as a result. And this makes so much sense to us Um, because even in just speaking English, we misunderstand one another all the time, right? Much less when you you bring in different cultural backgrounds and different language backgrounds, right? It becomes so easy for us to be offended or hurt by what someone else says to us. And that makes the task of communicating the good news of Jesus Christ that much harder, but that's one of the beauties of Christianity is that we believe in a religion where there is no right language, right? that we actually believe in a Lord who condescended to us to speak our very language. And so we, as God's people, go out to learn the language and the customs of others to take the good news to them. 
Because language and understanding is incredibly challenging. But God is uniting us. Right? He is bringing unity where there is division. And that gets us to our third point, which is the solution. Right, so this story and everything that we've read and discussed up to this point sets up the stage um, for the rest of the scriptures. That beginning in Genesis chapter 12, we see God call a man named Abram, who later became, becomes a, a, named Abraham, right? and, and makes a promise to him that, that through Abraham, all of the nations are going to be blessed. And that Abraham himself would become a father of, na- of a nation. That's actually why his name changes. That's what the name Abraham means. With so many people under this nation that it would be like trying to count the number of stars in the sky. Not the Houston sky, but like, you know, the wilderness sky. All right, this is the seed of God's promise to deal with sin that comes right after the Tower of Babel to change his people who are so prone to wandering away and prone toward rebellious and pagan beliefs. This is the seed of God's promise to unify a dispersed people, to bless us even though we are a curse to others and a curse to ourselves. And so dealing with this issue of division, kind of an an ethnocentrism in the church, the apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia. Right? The church in Galatia kind of created two different types of churches. You had your Gentile church and you had your Jewish church. They were not unified. They wouldn't eat together. Uh, they wouldn't sit together. Right? The Jews in the church were separate from the Gentiles and believed that the Gentiles needed to follow all of the Jewish customs in order to actually be participants within the church. So things like the ceremonial law, the, the practice of, of circumcision as well. And so Paul wrote to them to remind them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the earlier promise to Abraham. That though there is division amongst humans in the world, and in light of God's promises to unify God's people through Abraham, Paul reminds the church that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the fulfillment to give Abraham a family that would number more than the stars in the sky, that would bless the rest of the nations and to unite them. In, Genesis, sorry, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes in verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how do we get to be a part um, of God's reversal and reconciliation of what's going on here in Babel? How do we get to be a part of the Abrahamic promise? What is Paul saying? He's saying that there's a... uh, um, He's saying that, that the rules that the Jewish people kept... Things like circumcision. They were never about circumcision itself. They were a sign of belonging. That by faith, they were Yahweh's people. That by faith, they were a law-keeping people because they had been welcomed into his family. Their ceremonial laws were meant to show and remind them that they were his. 
right? So here was the point that Paul was saying. He was saying you don't need to become Jewish in order to be a son of Abraham. You don't need to be Jewish in order to receive the promise. Being born a Jew or keeping the Torah, the law, was not what makes you a son of Abraham. Those rules were meant to serve as a reminder and a sign that followers of God, any and all of Abraham's offspring, were set apart by God through faith. Circumcision was merely a sign of that faith. It was and is faith then that makes you a son of Abraham. Because the seed of Abraham, the blessing to all the nations, is Jesus. And we become recipients of his grace and his inheritance by faith. We receive reconciliation with God. And more than that, we become his sons and daughters. By faith in Christ, we become sons and daughters of Abraham. And thus the silly children's song actually begins to make sense. Why we actually sing that Abraham is our father. We believe it because we are in Christ. And he is the fulfillment of that. By faith in Christ we are unified. Where we have been disconnected. We are a people of different tongues, tribes and nations brought together in him. A people of different political parties and special interest groups brought together united in Christ. A people with different gifts, hobbies, um, vocations brought together united in Christ. A people who are lonely and are looking for belonging belong together in Christ. And unlike our pagan tendencies would indicate there is nothing that we can do or have done to manipulate our belonging to that promise. He does it out of his own free will because that is how loving and gracious our God actually is. He does it for a people who have tried to manipulate him because his love is that great. Like the parent who, who knows that the kid is sort of coming up to them be like, you know, in, in Target or something. Mom, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you want if you just get me this present. I, maybe the, the parent actually ends up getting that present. Why? Not because they were manipulated, but because they love that child, right? That is what is going on here. When we come to our Lord and ask for his love and his grace to us, it is not out of manipulation that we have earned it. It is because he freely desires to give it to us. So what does it mean to be united in Christ despite our division? Well, it looks like trying to be kind of as best, uh, it looks like uh, trying to live as best we can into that unity. It means that the church Catholic, uh, the church universal, is for all people who place their faith in Christ. That means that the church Catholic is meant to be multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-tribal people. And the local church ought to represent that reality as well. It ought to represent that multiplicity and diversity. So Advent members and attenders shouldn't all be carbon copies of one another. And therefore, um, we are united by faith in Christ, not necessarily in our hobbies or our fashions, um, our incomes or our ethnicities. We're going to disagree with each other. We're going to miscommunicate with each other. We're going to offend one another. But out of our commitment and union with Jesus Christ, we're going to continue to live that union out together. We do so because we are already united in faith. 
and because one day we will be united without sin. So recognizing our differences, we are to live into that unity. We should be multi-ethnic. We should be multi-tribal. We should be people with different skills, abilities, and passions. And God brings us together to remind us that we are one in Christ. We are one as he and the Father is one. So may Advent represent that. May we be a people who live into that future reality, a, a united people in Christ, though we may be different in every other way. Right. Let me conclude with this. Um, people regularly say that we live in, in one of the most divided times in human history. Right? Though we try kind of and manufacture unity through things like the, the metaverse or Google apps that translate languages immediately, um, or though we try to unify uh, around sort of a utopian, uh, unattainable and unsustainable vision for what unity and diversity actually looks like within our culture, I want to remind us that God is bringing about that unity uh, in ways that we never could believe. The end of the Bible paints a picture of everything has been made right from the curse that we have read everything in Genesis chapter 3 till now. Um, that all the sin of the world has been wiped away. And then it paints a picture for us in Revelation chapter 7. It says this, where John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Y'all, our future is a picture of people from all over the world, from diverse backgrounds, from different languages, united in clothing. And what is that clothing? It is the salvific robes that are given to us in Jesus Christ. It is our union with Him. They're unified in their worship and in their devotion, yelling and crying out and singing, salvation belongs to our Lord. Right? The people groups that have remained divided are being united in Him. God is doing it. So may we live that reality out together. Would you all pray with me? Our God and Father, we are grateful for what you are doing and what you have promised. Lord, it is hard to live into unity unless we do so in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that you would place our faith more and more in him and less and less in other uh, attempts to try to be united. Lord, but, but may we be made more and more like him. And I pray that for Advent and all of those within her walls. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.